this is not the mm-hmm. result of like, hey, I studied and did some logic problems. And I think this is here we here how we are. It's it's very much a this is my struggle. How do I resolve it? I mean, that's what's driving all of this. Yeah, and I think that we see that in spades in the life of Martin Luther. When you think of the nature of his struggle growing up, the nature of his struggle, his particular struggle in the monastery, then the 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 doctrinal revolution that took place in his life makes sense. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt. He's Ken. We're both the Coming Home Network. I, Matt Swaim, was an evangelical Protestant from a Wesleyan Arminian background. Ken was an unwashed Baptist, you know, unrepentant. Well, actually, just repented once, I think. Uh, Baptist uh, pastor. (laughs) And we've been sharing our experiences and all kinds of different things in this series we call on the journey. It's a production of the Coming Home Network. chnetwork.org is where you can find us. If you're someone who's on the journey, and if you're a Baptist who's mad at me, or if you're a Wesleyan who supports me, um, we'd love to hear from you in our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. You can also give to help support this and other efforts of the Coming Home Network by hitting that uh, donate button when you go to our site. Ken, my Baptist, my former Baptist friend, how are you? Doing well, Matt. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well, (laughs) and that's all right. Um, In a little while, you will see me, and then in a little while, you will not see me, and then in a little while, you will. So we've been talking about Martin Luther, and there is so much to unpack. We've been going through uh, not as much of his doctrine, but Mm -hmm. kind of like his his journey, his you know how he was formed, how he grew up, what his monastic life was like, and the material we're going to cover today. We've covered a lot of it before, but we've never covered it in the stream of his story and i found that i was i was looking through today's notes it hits very differently when you go through this having kind of heard the way that martin luther was formed than it does if you're Mm -hmm. just looking at his doctrine on a piece of paper yeah and so this series that we're doing martin uh, that is going to track some i say some of martin luther's life and experiences and some of his teaching that is we're going to focus in on the most essential doctrinal issues of sola fide, justification by faith alone, and sola scriptura, actually. We're not going to get into everything, and I want to make that clear up front so we don't have people complaining, you didn't talk about this and that and this and the other thing and all that. Anyway, we're talking about Luther's life, though, and we're wanting to understand it. And let me just back up slightly to get this thing rolling today. In our first episode, Matt, uh, dealing with Luther's early years, what we discussed was Luther's struggles Uh, growing up, his struggles in his family, the struggles that led him very suddenly in 1505 to leave his uh, university studies at the University of Erfurt to enter the strictest sect of the Augustinians, the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. Um, In his own words, just quickly again, I'm recapping, my mother caned me for stealing a nut until the blood came. Such strict discipline drove me to the monastery. This is the way Luther later in life described his motivation for entering the monastery. Again, 
Quote, my father once whipped me so that I ran away and felt ugly toward him till he was at pains to win me back. The serious and austere life that they led with me, that is his mother and father, that they led with me caused me to enter the monastery and become a monk. So in Luther's own words, this is what he, looking back, described as what drove him from the university where he was studying to become a lawyer into the monastery. Last week, we extended that discussion by talking about how Luther's struggles in his family continued in the monastery. And again, I'm quoting Martin Luther here. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other works. Looking back on this time, Luther would later say this, Matt, I'm quoting again, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair, so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. Okay, this is where we left off last week. Luther's struggle, in particular with a father that he felt he could never please and that he had been a discouragement to, um, carried on into this into the monastery where Luther appears to have had a similar vision of God. God was an angry father. God was a an angry father that he could never please, no matter how hard he tried. Okay, now it appears that Frederick of of Frederick the Wise, the Elector of Saxony, was looking for some new professors at the time to staff a new university that had been established in the city of Wittenberg, and Luther's confessor, Johann von Staupitz, who was also the vicar general of the Augustinian order at the time in Germany, Luther's friend, Luther's mentor, Luther's confessor. Staupitz knew how deeply Luther struggled um, to find peace with God. He also understood how bright, how intelligent, how brilliant, really, that this young Martin Luther was. And so it, it, it seems that he hoped that by pouring himself into the study of Scripture, um, Luther could be delivered from his continual struggles with depression and with anxiety. And so he, he um, prepared him, or he told him one day to prepare uh, to get his doctorate in sacred scripture and become a professor at the University in Wittenberg. And by the way, I just want to insert quickly, I was able to visit the monastery, Matt, where, where Luther was in Erfurt. And, and I was just stunned to, first of all, to realize that many of the buildings were original there. And I got to tell you, it was this. It was in particular really moving to sit in this room. I still remember the 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 tile floors, this room where the monks would have made their confessions, their their group confessions, their con- group confessions every day. I also was able to walk in the in the cloister, walk in the garden where Stalpitz and Luther had had this famous meeting. In fact, they say it was under a pear tree that Stalpitz. Uh, told Luther one day, get ready, I want you to study for your doctorate, you're going to become a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And in fact, I know it's not the the same pear tree, but they have a little pear tree that they've planted there in the middle of the garden to, uh, as a reminder of that time. And it was, it, it was, it was pretty moving, really, to be there. Yeah, fitting that so anyway, the Augustinians would have a pear tree, right? Because St. Augustine, you know, is often associated with pears as well. So, yeah, there's a, I mean, oh, yeah. when you think about this, I mean, these are not things that are just merely, again, uh, doctrines that are just 
kind of cold and written on the page. I mean, this comes out of a community. This comes out of an experience. This comes out of a struggle. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really what we were talking about last episode is that, I mean, this is the, this is not the mm-hmm. result of like, Hey, I studied and did some logic problems. And I think this is here we here, how we are. It's, it's very much a, this is my struggle. How do I resolve it? I mean, that's, what's driving all of this. Yeah. And I think that we see that in spades in the life of Martin Luther. When you think of the nature of his struggle growing up, the nature of his struggle, his particular struggle in the monastery, then the 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 doctrinal revolution that took place in his life makes sense. I, I'm not saying by that that it wasn't based on his study of Scripture or anything like that. It certainly was based on his study of Scripture, but it also seems to flow very naturally out of his situation. So let's let's move toward that, okay? In 1512 then, Luther received his doctorate, and he took his seat as professor of biblical theology or professor of scripture at the University of Wittenberg. It, it was during the first few years after that that Luther discovered something in his study of scripture that would change everything for him, and as well for the church of the late Middle Ages. And this is what it was, or this is how it began. Between 1513 and 1515, Luther lectured through the Psalms, but then in 1516, he turned to lecture through St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And right there in chapter one, Matt, he was struggling with the meaning of St. Paul's words in verses 16 and 17. So let's listen to those words. This is where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the justice of God or the righteousness of God, it's the same word in the Greek, for in it the justice of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, what Luther was wrestling with was the fact that in this passage, Paul seemed to be transmitting both good news and bad news. On the one hand, St. Paul says that he's describing the gospel, the good news, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So on the one hand, he's talking about the gospel, the good news. On the other hand, St. Paul was describing the gospel in terms that, um, that seemed like bad news to Luther. Let me, let me read how Luther puts it rather than putting words into his mouth. This is what Luther said. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and ju- and just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. So it, what? Let, let me try to put this together. What Luther was struggling with was this. Paul says that he's announcing good news, and he's not ashamed of it. But the good news is that the righteousness of God or the justice of God is revealed in the gospel. And so Luther is saying, how can it be good news for St. Paul to reveal to me that God is righteous and that he's going to judge all those who are unrighteous because Luther knew himself to be unrighteous. So how did he get past this? Well, 
Luther is straining to understand what Paul is saying here, and he fixed his mind on those words, the just shall live by faith. And he put together this the fact that the righteousness of God, the justice of God was revealed in the gospel with Paul saying, the just will live by faith. And suddenly an idea came to him that he had not thought before. And that is this, it suddenly came to, to, to Luther that the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about is being revealed in the gospel. It's not some righteousness by which God will judge. It is not the justice of God by which God will judge the guilty. Instead, Luther suddenly saw that what Paul was saying is that in the gospel, the righteousness that God will simply give to those who believe is set forth. That is the righteousness that will be received by faith alone. Okay, you follow? I do follow. And, you know, as you're talking, it it, it strikes me that, that uh, Luther's experience really does play into how he thinks of justice as a whole. And, you know, so often, like, when we think about justice in terms of, like, the criminal justice system, like, it seems that Luther right. is talking about justice as um, the means by which a guilty person is punished, right? Whereas right, right. that's not how, I mean, th when Thomas Aquinas talks about justice, he's not talking, I mean, he, he mentions that aspect of it, obviously, but he's talking about how mm -hmm. do we give to someone that which is their due, um, which, I mean, justice is a virtue, right? It's one of the four um, cardinal virtues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it seems to me that like uh, this, this is uh, taking justice, and, and, and we'll get into this a whole lot more, but justice is being sort of seen as like a legal a legal thing here rather than a question of how um, how virtue is, uh, is being formed and how we receive kind of like the virtue of God and the course of all this and how does that all work. I mean, there's pieces of that, and it's, it's complex, and, you know, it's a hard thing to articulate, and you know how mm -hmm. it can be. If somebody asks you a question, an email question about justification, Ken, you have to, like, answer with, like, 13 paragraphs because of the nuances involved in this. But um, it is, like... Uh, we're we're in very legal territory here. The last time you mentioned that, you said it would take twenty six paragraphs. So at least you're you're. I've cut it in half. Me as, cut it in half. For you're the describing sake of time. me as a bit more succinct today. Yeah. Well, okay. The phrase "the righteousness of God" or "the justice of God" could take you in a bunch of different directions, um, and so I actually don't want to go off onto them. But to simply say that that this is how Luther understood it. Luther understood the words or the phrase the righteousness of God or the justice of God to be describing that righteousness by which God is perfectly righteous and will judge the unrighteous. And so Luther, knowing himself to be unrighteous, hated that phrase. That's what he says. He hated it. And so he sees Paul as throwing out something that is like in contradiction to itself or something he can't put together. On the one hand, Paul is saying, here's good news, the gospel. And on the other hand, here it is in the gospel is set forth the justice of God, which is bad news for Luther because Luther knows himself to be a sinner. So anyway, this realization that comes to Luther like a flash of light from heaven is, is this. The good news is that Jesus has borne the punishment for our sins and that the moment we believe, that's justification by faith alone, the moment we believe, we put 
God's righteousness on, as it were, like a man might put a cloak on. From that moment, Luther saw we are as righteous in God's sight as Jesus himself. We are justified by faith alone. I just want to pause That's you right there. That's what the gospel and I don't is. Want to, yeah, I don't want to dig too much into this, but righteous in God's sight. I think those three words, in God's sight, are really important for understanding what Luther has come to here because, as you said, he puts you put on righteousness mm-hmm. like a cloak. It is something that makes you appear righteous when God looks at you. It is not an inner yeah. interior, like complete regeneration of you. It is a cloak because Luther thought that, well, right. you could never be fully regenerated. And we're we'll getting into that. But like in God's sight, I think is are like three really important words yeah. in that idea. This is where the entire conception of, of legal imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness comes to play. Yes, Luther said, Luther believed that in himself, he was sinful through and through, and he could never do anything but sin. And the good news was that because Christ had died for his sins, the moment he looked to Christ in faith, I mean, the moment you look to the cross in faith, Luther said, this is what Luther came to, Christ's righteousness, his own righteousness, is legally credited to you. You are clothed in it like someone who puts on a cloak. From that moment, you are accredited in God's sight. You are treated as though you were righteous inside and out. You're like a dunghill. There's the classic you know, metaphor or illustration. You're like a dunghill that has been covered then with snow. Okay. Um, a few years later, Luther, in fact, would use the image of the cloak in one of his most famous works, The Freedom of the Christian, when he said this, Christ has suffered for our sins and has fulfilled the law for us. We have only to believe in him, and by believing in him, take hold, as it were, of his merits and put them on like a cloak. Luther, in fact, referred to this, Matt, as the glorious exchange. We give Jesus our sins. He gives us his righteousness legally credited to us. That's going to be very important because that's the key difference. Because, you know, we all Christians believe that righteousness is God's gift to us. It depends on what you mean by that. Anyway, this was Luther's Damascus Road experience, and here's what Luther said about it. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God, that is that phrase, had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage became to me a gate to heaven. Okay, so just to summarize quickly, even though I'm sure we have already summarized it two or three times here, what Luther came to, I mean, what he was struggling with is that he knew he was sinful, he could never become righteous in God's sight, and he viewed God as, as, as a judge that just stood there at the door, and impossible to please Father, as I've said many times, and so he felt stuck. Now he suddenly comes to this new view that in the gospel, Christ's righteousness is set forth as, as a gift that God will simply give to the one who believes. And so by faith alone, the instant you look to Christ in faith, to the cross in faith, Christ's own righteousness is credited to your account. You're clothed in it. And from that moment, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ himself in God's sight, even though you remain through and through a sinner. That's what 
that's the uh, re- revelation that he came to. It has a lot of implications that we won't get into, but that's the revelation. Yeah, and again, that comes that those phrase those those three words in God's sight, um, yeah. so important. And it's it's as though you were to walk into a courtroom and you did the thing, but the judge says, "I'm not going to hold you guilty for this." Right? There's no right. way you you're could accounted. Possibly, right. You, you, yeah, you you're going to be accounted innocent. Restore the damage that you've done, but we've decided that you're yeah. um we're we're not going to. Or like if someone says we're not going to press charges, we know you did it, but we've decided yeah. that we're not going to press charges. I mean, it's it's right. It's so much. It's so different from like the idea of baptismal regeneration. Of course, we've talked about baptism in other uh, places quite a bit. Um, but or it's the a very idea different kind right of way to- of looking at the human person than than the Catholic historic Christian, I mean, the, host, the yeah. historic Christian understanding, which is Catholic or Orthodox. It's different from the Orthodox understanding too. Yes, totally different. Yes, yes. Um, But I think we can understand then, I mean, think about his upbringing again. Think about Luther's struggles from the home, his struggles in the university, his reason for help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk, his struggles in the monastery. And then he he becomes a professor of scripture and he's studying Romans and this and, and this revelation comes to him, and he feels that he's been reborn, and that open the gates have been thrown up, uh, thrown open into heaven. He has a new view of what it means to be justified. Um, the entire doctrine of salvation, he has a new view of it. Okay, and so it makes sense then that this would become the central doctrinal issue for Luther. And in fact, Matt Luther's eventual rejection of the entire Catholic worldview the entire sacramental system of the Catholic Church, is rooted in this one thought, really, the righteousness that you and I must possess to enter heaven. It is not a righteousness that God actually works in us, transforming us into his image, making us righteous. Baptismal regeneration, thing you were hinting at a moment ago. It, it's not any of that. It's not a righteousness that God actually works in us and makes us as we co- cooperate with his grace, as we walk in the steps of faith, as we strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as we are remolded by his spirit. It, it's not that. Instead, for Luther, the righteousness by which we enter heaven is what he referred to as an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness in the Latin, um, extra nos, outside of us, a righteousness outside of us that is legally credited to us it's Christ's righteousness imputed, legally imputed to us. And because of that, Luther's commitment to this view of justification was absolutely total. It was the article of faith, Luther famously said, upon which the church stands or falls. In his view, this view of justification must be held or the church collapses, it falls. Uh, Luther went, the word that came to me was wild. Luther went wild over this. He interpreted, he began to interpret all of Scripture in the light of this new teaching. He was willing to question, in fact, the sacred authority or the inspired authority of any book, any book in the New Testament, if it didn't seem to agree with what he had come to with this revelation. For instance, the epistle of James, very famously, because James said in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by his deeds, and not by faith alone. Here's, here's how Luther responded. Away with James. Its authority is not great enough to cause me to abandon the doctrine of faith, meaning the doctrine of faith alone. 
If they, he's referring here to other teachers, if they will not agree to my interpretations, then I shall make rubble of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. It is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. Therefore, I do not want him in my Bible. That's, that's Luther at the time. He, you know, uh, he repented of that, and, he, and he, he later allowed James into the Bible. But that's what he said at one point in his frustration. Therefore, I do not want him in my Bible. Luther, Matt, went so far as to assert that no one could be saved who didn't agree with him on this crucial doctrine of justification. I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. And I want to point out here, too, that this is, uh, I, I think when we hear him say this this way, it can be easy for people who are cynical about Luther to say, uh, he's constantly saying, my doctrine, um, I don't want mm -hmm. him in my Bible. Um, his I and my, uh, he uses a lot of, you know, what they call I messages, right? And cynical in thinking that like Luther sees himself as the ultimate authority to interpret all scripture. But that's not, if you read Luther in the context of himself, that's not what he means by that. He means this is God's truth. This is not something I made up. Yeah. This is something I, yeah. I stumbled upon. This is the truth of God. This is not, when he says, here I stand, I can do no other. Other people interpret that as like, well, here we stand over here too, and here I stand here, yeah. and here I stand over there. Luther's idea in hope, hoping to open all this up to everybody and inviting them to have this private right of interpretation is that they would walk in and not see Luther's doctrine, but God's doctrine the same way Luther was seeing it. That's exactly right, and that explains as well why um, this is still how serious re Reformation-minded Protestants feel. And none of, none of, none of them feels that they are asserting <coughs> their doctrine, quote-unquote, but just what Paul says, what Paul teaches, what the Bible teaches, God's doctrine, as you said. And I think it might come as a surprise to Catholics listening to this to know that um, what, what, what Luther said here about he who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved is exactly what the most serious um, classically reformed Protestants still believe. Um, I have a book in my, in my library. It's titled Justification by Faith Alone, Affirming the Doctrine by Which the Church and the Individual Stands or Falls. Um, it's a book in which a, a number of contemporary Protestant theologians and preachers uh, contribute various chapters uh, on various aspects of the doctrine of justification. In the chapter titled Rome, Not Home, Rome, not home. Uh, Dr. John Gerstner, who was a professor for many years at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, where, where Scott Hahn attended, um, he talks in this chapter, again, the chapter title is Rome, not home, um, bouncing off of Scott's book, right? Rome, sweet home. In this chapter, Matt, he talks about the conversion of this former seminary student, Scott Hahn, to the Catholic faith. And he describes... It, with sincerity, how he mourned when he learned that Scott had become Catholic. Why did he mourn? He mourned because he believes he believed with all his heart. He believed that no one could be saved who had understood the classic Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone, and then had rejected it. 
He believed that no one could be saved. In fact, Gerstner interprets Scott's conversion to Catholicism as evidence that he must have never known the Lord at all. He must have never been a Christian. This is what Gerstner says. Instead of leaving the Protestant church, Scott was leaving the lost world into which he was born and from which, and from, and from which he was never actually separated. You hear that? He wasn't just leaving the Protestant church to become Catholic. Scott was leaving the lost world into which he was born and from which he was never actually separated. He had never actually been a Christian for the false church of Rome. He has leapt from the frying pan into the fire and only God can deliver him as a brand from the burning. So yet yeah, now I want to counter a, a, a bit some things you've hinted at, but I just want to counter it. You know, Catholics listening to this are, have got to be scratching their heads and thinking, what? I mean, we know that Christ offered his life as an atonement for our sins. We know that salvation is the free gift of God. We know that righteousness is a gift. But no, in the minds of men like Luther and John Gerstner and many others, there are really only, there are only two options. And you can't have this kind of like gray area in the middle. Either we are justified by faith alone, this is what is held. Either we are justified by faith alone in the legally imputed righteousness of Christ, or we are attempting in some manner to earn our own salvation through our works. And, and the logic kind of goes like this, Matt. This is how they think of it. If Christ's perfect righteousness is legally credited to me, so the reasoning goes, then salvation is entirely the work of God. In that case, God will receive all of the glory for the work of salvation. In that case, I have contributed nothing, and I have nothing in which to boast. What is that hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. It's that kind of a thought, okay? If, on the other hand, this is how the classic view thinks through it. If, on the other hand, our obedience is in any sense required, if in any sense we have to trust God and walk in the steps of faith in obedience in order to receive salvation in the end, then we will have contributed to our own salvation. Then we will have something in which to boast. Then God has done, you know, God is partly responsible for our salvation and we are partly responsible. And what we have in the end is what a, a professor, I'm not professor, Pastor John MacArthur refers to as a damning system of works righteousness. That's how he refers to the Catholic view. It, it, what's interesting is that, you know, I was, this is very different than the Wesleyan Arminian understanding. I mean, there are some, there's some overlaps and some commonalities, uh, but uh, we very much in the Wesleyan Arminian Christian tradition, which comes through uh, Methodism and, you know, that whole wing of yeah. Protestant Christianity. I mean, Luther is, what you're seeing is kind of the scaffolding upon which once saved, always saved is built and upon which the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination and all these other things, like in order to kind of try and flesh out what it means uh, for God to have all the glory and for us to not cooperate at all, all those things kind of come out mm -hmm. of it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. idea that if you were saved once, then there's nothing you could have done to earn that. There's nothing you could do to lose that. Um, so if you're like Scott Hahn and you leave, the only conclusion we could draw is that you never had it in the first place and you were just 
You just look like you did. Like, <laughs> you know, in the sight of God, you never had any of it. Uh, so, I mean, in, in, in the Wesleyan Arminian, it's, and their entire, I feel like I have to say this because there are probably a lot of Protestant mm-hmm. Christians from my tradition who are like, this is not what all Protestants believe. This is, I swear, this is not what my Protestant tradition believes. Like the Nazarenes right. and the, a lot of Pentecostals out there are probably thinking, this is not how we look at things. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this is the dominant. I mean, if you go to a non-denominational church, yeah, um, this is I'd say about view. eight times out of 10, this is their, this is their doctrine. Uh, well, so, then, as a Methodist, let me just ask you quickly, then, as a Methodist who believed that, that you needed to walk in the steps of faith and in obedience to Christ, um, how did you deal with the fact that some would say, oh, so you're earning your salvation? Oh, so salvation isn't all of God? So God doesn't get all the glory? You get part of it? Or did you just not think I, it through like that? I didn't think it through until I went to college and had a roommate who was a Calvinist, <laughs> you know, and started to like kind of get these. Start I always understood. It. I mean, bear in mind that in my tradition, yeah. which was in the Wesleyan holiness, the holiness movement specifically in Wesleyanism, I mean, we have mm-hmm. revivals all the time and there are altar calls at every service and people talked about the idea of backsliding all the time. In Luther's, there, Lutheranism, there's no concept of backsliding. Like in my tradition, there was always like this concept like, mm-hmm. You were walking with the Lord, and then you sinned, and you've got to restore what has been broken, and so you got to go and recommit, you know, and rededicate is a word that would be yeah. very often used in yeah. that, in that world. Uh, but again, we believed completely in God's sovereignty, uh, but that's why to us, like the the gift that he had given us to either say yes or no to it was, was treated with such reverence because the God who created all things, including us, including our own free will had then said, okay, here's my hand. Are you going to take it? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, that's a, there are probably Wesleyans watching this who would critique the way that I just explained that, but, <laughs> and rightly so. Well, um, but that's kind of a snapshot. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to dodge this, this whole discussion a little bit because we're going to be coming back as we move forward. I, 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 I want to develop Luther's thought and explain it. I, I wanted to set it out there for people to see, and then we'll turn around and we'll begin to critique it more, more next week, actually. But, but I can just throw out an image that, that in a way kind of answers the whole thing. Um, I, think that the, I think that the classic Reformation conception is like a logical construct that appears to make sense, you know, that is, oh, well, obviously, unless God does everything, then God doesn't get all the credit. God doesn't get all the glory, and you have something in which to boast. Um, and yet, if you think through all the stories of Scripture, then that 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 um, construct just begins to fall apart. Just a story as simple as Jesus telling a man, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and you will receive your sight, you know? In other words, this man puts his faith in Jesus, he trusts what Jesus is saying, but by, by, by the Lord's own words, he has to go and dip himself in the, in the pool of Siloam and he has to wash. There's faith and there's obedience right there, and he's not going to come up seeing unless both occur. He's not going to say, yeah. well, I trust you, but I'm not going to go wash and now give me my sight. So anyway, do you love God and do you love your neighbor? Yeah. Okay. The well, Bible. if you want to be perfect, go sell all your stuff, yeah. right? Um, you know, has anyone here condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Now right. go and sin no more. There's a there's a there's a caveat, but at the same time, you know, at, we would still, as you're talking about sim- hymns, we still as Wesleyans would still sing the hymn. Yeah. 
what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, uh, nothing true. can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. You know, true. nothing but the blood of Jesus. So True. True. And we'll come back to all that then. But I'm just stating at this point that the construct is wrong. The construct sounds very logical, but actually every page of the Bible refutes it in one way or another, and we'll come back to that. But anyway, again, hearing this, though, that is hearing this idea that 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 if we believe if you or i believe that we need to trust jesus and go wash in the pool of siloam in order to be in order to see that if we believe that then we are involved in a damning system of works righteousness essentially we're adding our own obedience to Christ's perfect work etc cetera, etc cetera. now uh, catholics hearing this and wesleyans i give you that will will be scratching their heads vigorously at this point after all i mean again i'll state it we know that salvation is the gift of god we know that as saint augustine said in fact we know that even our good works are the fruit of god's grace working within us we know that and when you and i walk forward at mass i thought about this when we walk forward to receive the body and blood of christ has it ever crossed your mind to think that you were performing a good work that somehow you were God's employee and you were helping God out uh, by performing this important work for God and by that you were going to merit or earn salvation. Instead, well, listen to the prayer that St. Thomas Aquinas wrote about receiving Mass because what St. Thomas felt is what I feel and it's what you feel when you are going forward to receive communion. Almighty and ever-living God, I approach the sacrament of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I come sick to the doctor of life, unclean to the fountain of mercy, blind to the radiance of eternal life, poor and needy to the Lord of heaven and earth. You and I come forward like the man staggered into the pool of Siloam in order to see. We don't come forward thinking that we are performing a great work for God. We know that salvation is of grace from first to last. We know that. But none of that matters. So I have to make clear, in John Gerstner's mind, in the mind of classic Reformation-type theologians, the, the Calvinist type mainly, because you and I believe, as Catholics, that we have to use our freedom to cooperate with God's grace in order to inherit eternal life, we are teaching a damning system of works righteousness. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur put it like this, the difference between Rome and the reformers is not theological hair splitting. A right understanding of justification by faith is the very foundation of the gospel. You cannot go wrong at this point without corrupting every other doctrine as well. And that is why every different gospel is under the eternal curse of God. And he's speaking it in this context specifically of the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. This is why every different gospel is under the eternal curse of God. Which, by implication, puts under the eternal curse of God every single Christian for the first 1,500 of the years of the church and every Christian anywhere except Germany when this started, and any Christian who is not coming through the Reformed path from that that place on it's a very small and select view view it's it's a very elite club of christians 
who accept this view. Hey, Jesus, as, said, Jesus said the gate is narrow. <laughs> Jesus, I, yeah, Jesus said, yes, yeah, but, no, you're spelling it out really well. It's all Catholics through history, all the Orthodox through history, and every version of Protestantism that doesn't have this very clearly delineated conception of justification. Now, what a mean trick for the Holy Spirit to play for a millennium and a half before finally telling us how it actually works. You know, I mean, this is the these are the implications yeah. of this as well, because as as McGrath says, and we've quoted over and over again, this is a theological novum. This is not. This is something that Luther discovered, yeah. but he didn't discover it because he thought that the church had had it and lost it. He he discovered it and brought it in as though the church had never had it. And it had, but of had course, the, articulated the way it, he had. Yeah, but of course the argument will be made that there were some all the way along who understood. There were some who knew, you know, the true teaching, um, et, et cetera, et cetera. But you're, you're right in the general scope of what you're saying. This, is, this X, X is out almost the, almost the entire history of Christianity and the history of those who called themselves Christians. And this makes sense then of so much in our story so far, it, it makes sense of why Luther loved this doctrine so much because it solved the central problem and struggle of his entire life. Like you said, it was like the gates of paradise had been thrown open to him. He felt himself reborn and it to have just walked straight, straight into heaven. That, that's why this became the central doctrine that eventually led Martin Luther into confrontation with the church and, um, and the teaching of the Catholic faith. And I want to kind of say in, in closing then, as we begin to wrap up this episode, um, it's easy for me to describe this doctrine, Matt. I mean, it's easy for me to go on. I could go on for a long time describing it, in fact, in much more detail. This is the doctrine that I was taught as a new Christian. And as you mentioned a while ago, in the non-denominational evangelical world, this is essentially what is held. This is the doctrine that I believed and that I taught. This was the doctrine that was taught to me when I was in Bible college. Uh, when I went through Fuller Theological Seminary, this is the doctrine that I learned and believed for years and years and years. My favorite theologians historically were all men who taught this doctrine, Luther, Calvin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, all of the Reformed branch. Um, and these people also believed what John Gerstner and MacArthur believed regarding those who rejected this doctrine, and I believed that as well. It was only over time that I began to have questions about it, and this is where we're really going to pick up next week. I see that we're basically out of time, and that is, what, it, what is my story, and what is your story? What is my story of how I came to see that, that Luther was making a grave mistake in this? And we'll go on with his story, what happened with him and his relationship with the church. It's a good cliffhanger, right? Because there's a we've just opened a whole lot of cans uh, you know, in the, in the last box. 20 minutes or so. Um, and I hope that people stick around and listen. And, you know, I've seen some people in YouTube comments, you know, on the previous episodes saying, hey, well, how come you never covered this? I'm like, listen, we're not even to 1517 yet, right? We're not even to the Wittenberg door. <laughs> There's a whole bunch that we haven't covered. And it's impossible to cover all of it. Um, but hopefully we'll at least get to... Well, I suppose... What we're setting out. I suppose do. instead of doing a series, I guess we could do just one, you know, 25-hour, uh, you know podcast and then maybe maybe uh, someone wouldn't say well you skipped this or you skipped that but anyway yeah no, we'd still skip something you know there's gonna it's impossible to tell so uh, yeah it's as good a place as any to stop 
we encourage you to, if you have questions about this or maybe your own experience of, you know, reading through Roland Bainton and seeing some of these things for yourself or any of this, uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Feel free to come visit us in the online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. You can also go and watch the other episodes in the series uh, that we're doing on Martin Luther by simply going to chnetwork.org slash on the journey. And while you're at chnetwork.org, if you want to support what we do and uh, make it to where we can continue to support others who are on the journey, uh, then click that donate button as well. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you again. We'll talk to you next week. All right, week. buddy. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>